welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome film and television actress Lorraine Gary, a veteran of the Jaws film series and the comedy epic 1941, and much more. She also sponsors Human Rights Watch Student Task Force and works on behalf of the feminist majority. She was married for 64 years to Sid Scheinberg of Universal Pictures, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. Hello, Lorraine. Hello, Steve. <clears throat> so what's going on with that palm tree behind you? Um, <laughs> that is a digital uh, uh, portrait. I figure with a cloudy day in Los Angeles, I would give us a little bit of a tropical feeling. And considering we're going to be talking about Jaws, which even though it's not tropical, there is a water motif. I thought it was appropriate. That's funny. Yes. <laughs> um I actually have to ask you a question. Um, is your granddaughter Allie Gelber? No. Okay. Allie Gelber is the daughter of my daughter-in-law's sister, Danielle Clayman. Oh, okay. Gelber. Yes. My, my son Darren is best friends with Allie, so I thought oh. there was an interesting connection there. Interesting. Yeah, um, she's lovely. She, he made a good choice. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, let's 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 dip into the past. Um, you were born in uh, Queens, I believe. Actually, uh, I was born in Harlem at a hospital called Sydenham, which was on 125th Street. And my parents were living in the Bronx at that point. Oh, okay. Now, what brought the family to California? I know that you eventually moved when you were young to California. Did you, I know your dad was in an aspect of show business, right? My dad was a business manager, a CPA, and his primary client in uh, new, when he was in New York was a disc jockey. I mean, this was very, very long ago, so you wouldn't know the name, but it was Martin Block, and he had a show called Make Believe Ballroom. And Martin and his wife, Esther, chose to move to California and re restart their lives together. And uh, my dad thought, okay, that's a good idea. And we moved in 1948. I was in camp, which I hated, uh, and I got a letter from my dad saying, darling, I have news for you. We're moving to California. We're going to have a rolling lawn. When we moved to California, the rolling lawn was one little patch of green, but it was beautiful and it was much better than living on the fourth floor of an apartment building in Queens. Queens is where we came from. We moved from the Bronx to Queens. Well, uh, I, I, I'm a kindred spirit because my dad, I'm a Chicago uh, born kid and my dad got tired of those winters and his, his brother was working in California. So he followed that Horace Greeley head west thing. So he also uh, got us out to California. Oh. Now, did you, um, were you one of those kids who loved to perform from an early age? Were you, were you doing things in elementary school like peering in plays or did that come much later? No, I, I was one of those kids. 
I remember standing on the stage singing a cowboy song in a cowboy costume. And that was in the sixth grade in California. I, I loved doing that. And I was taking uh, singing lessons and acting lessons. I tried to take dance lessons from a well-known choreographer and husband of a movie star. His name was Nico Charisse. And I'm so clumsy and klutzy. I was overweight and sort of blind. Um, he said, you'll never, you'll never be an actress. You will never be an actress. And we said goodbye to each other forever. So I proved him wrong, but well, I am his, still clutzy. His, his, his loss, definitely. Um, what, high, what high school did you attend in L.A.? I, I lived in Beverly Hills, so I went to Beverly High. Okay. Got it. Got it. I was down the road at Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> well, we lived near you then, because when Sid and I were married, the first, second house we bought was near Hamilton, about three blocks away on, on Cardiff. What on what street? Do you remember? It, yes, Cardiff. Oh, sure, of course. Well, I lived on Cataraugus, which... Uh, <laughs> I, I had trouble spelling for many years, and then I discovered that it was the name of a New York Indian tribe. So, ah. so that that was news to me. So, tell I mean, since you married Sid very early in your life, tell tell me how you met. It was a Saturday, and uh, I had a date with an older man. Uh, he was twenty eight, and he was a vet. He had been in the army, and I thought it was very very exciting. Uh, he called me um, a call that I was living in a dorm and the dorm you didn't have your own phone there was one phone on each floor but you had a buzzer in your room I got buzzed went to the phone and it was this man who said uh, sorry I've got to cancel our date I just got engaged so okay <laughs> I was free on Saturday and in the dorm and a friend a young woman I you know had just moved into the dorm I, I was in college for less than three weeks. Um, and she said, listen, I'm going over to this fraternity house, which turned out to be a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, in New York, fraternity houses are fairly small. Uh, do you want to come? And I said, yeah, I washed my hair. I got ready for a date. Sure, I'll come. So I went with her, <clears throat> and we walked into the apartment. And I there were several guys there, and there was one that was dramatically different he was tall he was beautiful he had bright green eyes he had gorgeous wrists and a mellifluous voice and we started talking we were immediately attracted to each other and uh, after about an hour into that he said well why don't we go downstairs and have a drink so we went down to the university bar which was in that building and I had a sidecar. I was 18. I never drank before, but he was 19, and, and he was a drinker at that point. Um, and he walked me back to the dorm, and he kissed me and asked me for a date the next weekend. And I ran upstairs, and I wrote my mom, Dear Mom, I've met the man I'm going to marry. <laughs> How dramatic. It was dramatic, particularly since it never occurred to me to get married or to have nice to have a date, but to marry someone. Those words never were in my heart or came out of my mouth. Um, 
I wanted to be a Broadway actor. That's what I wanted to do. Maybe musical comedy actor. But uh, I fell in love that minute. And we were together from then on. So that, that university you were talking about, was, were you at Columbia at that time? Yes, I was at Columbia. I started out in their School of uh, Dramatic Arts. And when I fell in love with Sid, and we really wanted to be together all the time, he was studying. He was in, uh, oh my God, he was in his first year of law school. And I think, yeah, first year of law school. So he was studying all the time. Therefore, I left the School of Dramatic Arts. I went into the General Columbia University and started studying international relations, which may be why I'm so fascinated by uh, Human Rights Watch. And I have a great innate body love uh, for Africa. <clears throat> And um, that's where it started. Excuse me. <clears throat> I just ate some pastry, so I'm being punished. So you you literally were at the beginning of your career, and Sid was definitely at the beginning of his career. In fact, he hadn't really started his career yet. No, he hadn't. Well, he he has a secret career nobody really knew about. When he was a kid, a teenager in Corpus Christi, Texas, he... Uh, twice worked at different stations as a disc jockey. So my feeling about his voice, it was um, not only me. I mean, he, he really had a gorgeous voice and he could also speak Spanish. So he was a bilingual uh, disc jockey person on the radio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Sure, I've, I've been there, uh, uh, interesting. So you you both come out to California. I ask, did you get married in New York or did you get married out here? Well, we got married in California two years after we met. But Sid, Sid came uh, and stayed stayed with me, with my family, and worked for my dad for a couple of months during the summer. We went back. We got engaged that summer. And uh, we went back to New York. And it, Oh, no, we didn't go back to New York. Uh, we were heading back east. I was going back to Columbia for my second year of college. Sid was heading to Harvard. He, I, I was wrong about what he was studying. He was studying it when we met in the library. He was studying. He was still in college. But then law school, and he he started uh, at the university. No, he was going to Harvard. I've got it all mixed up. Sorry, this is not a great week for me. Uh, I lost a dog three days ago so it's um, uh, i'm sorry that's really all i can think about right now is eddie but <clears throat> sid oh, and i got engaged and um, went back you know we, we went to corpus christi to be with his family and then we were driving to the airport sid's dad was driving us i was going back to columbia sid had been accepted to harvard so he was going to boston and in the car en route to the airport in Texas, he said, I can't be without you. We have to be together. So we decided in the car that we would both go to the University of Texas. He was admitted immediately to the law school, and I was admitted as a sophomore. <clears throat> and we continued our relationship. How did you feel about being in Texas? I was stunned because I had never been around um, 
discrimination. And I would see a white drinking fountains, colored drinking fountains. And it was, uh, it was really a shock to me. Texas, Austin, Texas is really fun. I liked Austin. I did not like the other parts of Texas very much. Uh, but I really I enjoyed Austin. We had a, a fun year. And Sid was actually a star of the law school. And the, um, the tradition at the University of Texas Law School is that you, for the homecoming event, there is a homecoming queen. Well, the homecoming queen who was chosen by the law school students happened to be black. And the dean of the law school um, said, this is not acceptable. He called Sid in because he was the primary student in the law school first year. And he said, uh, look over there. And out the window behind his desk was the state capitol. And he said, there's a woman in the law school uh, whose whose husband is a senator in the Texas Senate, and she's the one that should be the, the home court and queen. And Sid said, I'm leaving. We're not going to stay here. I'm going back to Columbia. And uh, bye. And we left. We left. Good for we left you. Home. Good yeah. for you. Wow. And then we decided our, our marriage was coming up. We went to uh, back home to Los Angeles. Uh, Sid agreed to, to come to L.A. with me. He was offered a job in D.C. and turned it down. Um, my father, and after, actually, we got married. We had a wonderful wedding. I think I was the first in my class to get married. I, I couldn't believe it because it's nothing that ever interested me. But, yeah, I was the first one. Anyway, my dad um, adored Sid and knew what he was as a working person. And he was negotiating for something for the Jack Benny show. So he was working with Universal's lawyers. And he said, you know, my son-in-law is brilliant. Um, and he's been out here for a year. Sid, the first year, Sid was teaching at UCLA, teaching at the law school. And, wow. okay. and my dad said, you, you got to meet him. He's really terrific. And I bet you might end up hiring him. And they did, and he was the lowest on the of the lawyers for a year or two, but it was clear that his path was vertical, and he started doing all sorts of interesting things. Well, and of I, course, I, I, I know that I know Lou Wasserman, such a titan over there, was the big cheese. What was your impression of Mr. Wasserman? But I didn't meet him until a few years later. the The big cheese first was the head of the law department. The second big cheese was this very romantic, larger-than-life man, Jennings Lang, who was really fun to be with. And he was kind of Sid's big cheese at that point in life. We got involved with Lou and Edie much later. Um, I don't know. I don't know what my first impression was. I have no idea. So um, you start... You start your career, you, um, you, I believe you're at the Pasadena Playhouse, correct? No, I was no. at the Pasadena Playhouse in high school oh, okay. uh, in a competition, and I won the award of uh, Best Actress. And I, it was in an Irish play, Writers to the Sea, and I did it with a dialect, the whole thing. Uh, but that was in high school. That, that, that was, was high school. 
And I didn't start my career right away. I had babies. I had two sons yes. almost right away. And John, then, John and then we, what? John, John and Bill. Yeah, John and Bill. They really torture me because of the names. How couldn't you think of something more interesting? <laughs> <laughs> Well, for the for the listeners, John Scheinberg, uh, uh, he's your older son or younger son? I can't. He's never my remember. older son, Jonathan J. Scheinberg. Jonathan, John and I worked together at Columbia Pictures back oh. in the, in the eighties, the and that's where we met. And uh, he made a deal for me, which I'll always remember him for. But we'll get get to that another time. So, um, so you start working in television. Um, well, I started working in little theaters, little and theaters. I, yes, little theaters, and then I auditioned for the actor's studio and was accepted, and I did most of my work in little theaters for the first few years, and then I got a job, and uh, I think I said, may I help you? That was my line, and the <laughs> second, <laughs> and I had a couple of jobs like that. But they started piling up, and it was it was wonderful. And I could still do my theater work, which I loved. Well, come along 1974, 1975, uh, which is a few years later, you are cast in Jaws. Uh, obviously, it's an iconic picture, an iconic role. Can you kind of walk us a little bit through how you ended up uh, working on that picture? Yes. Um, I can. Oh, I guess the obvious answer is Sid was head of the studio. So get that out of the way and have it said out loud. And Sid had adopted Steven Spielberg as his protege. So, But the, the Steven had seen my work. I was in the pilot of Kojak. I pay, played uh, Telly Savalas's girlfriend. And I did a couple of Kojaks. And he he liked my work. And I guess it was a way of Sid being thanked. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to bullshit too much. Well, it just, just it just little. it helps it helps when you have people in high places. But I think that from what I read, uh, you did the Marcus Nelson murders. Was that part of that Kojak? I, uh, that was Kojak. Yes. yes. So I mean, obviously, Stephen was uh, impressed with that. I mean, the the things I've read about the making of Jaws portray him as someone who was literally overwhelmed by the process of making this movie. Um, I know that you, in, in the first Jaws movie, you do not do a, any of the water stunts. So you weren't out on the ocean, but tell us a little bit about uh, just coming out to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, you were there quite a bit of time, I would think. I have been there every season. <laughs> it's, a, it's a delightful place to be. Um, doing the first job, we had so much fun because everybody was delicious. I mean, Stephen is still wonderful, but he was he was a boy and he was a lot of fun to be with. And uh, Robert Shaw, oh my God, one of the most attractive men I had ever met and totally charming. It's a good thing we only overlapped three days. I could have fallen head over heels in love with him. Um, <laughs> But Stephen had, uh, he had rented a house. I stayed in a hotel. And Stephen had us to dinner most of the time. And he had a Portuguese woman cooking. 
superb food. So that was fun. And Carl Gottlieb would be writing whatever Nick, the next day's work would be. And it, it just, it, that part of it was fun. It was strange being alone and not having my kids or my husband, but it was really fun. You have a terrific rapport with Roy Scheider in the movie, as you do in the next film as well. Um, had you ever met Roy before this movie? I never had met him, and we did not have a personal rapport. Really? We, yes. Um, we didn't like each other, and I, Roy hurt my feelings one day. I remember this so clearly. <clears throat> Stephen was setting up a shot where Roy and I were sitting close to each other. And Roy turned to me and said, you have a big head. <laughs> and he didn't like me. I mean, my head was literally larger than his head. I mean, he was a frail man. He was not a big guy. But we worked and it was fine. He spent most of his time with oil on his body, with one of those tanning things, you know, the aluminum foil. Right. And and he smoked. And, you know, he just, we had no personal relationship. None. Wow. Boy, you know, the, the magic of the movies, it, you know, on, on in the film, you guys are thick as thieves. And that's called good acting. It's acting. That's what you do. <laughs> now, while you're making this movie, were you obviously aware of the fact of the problem? Well, let's see. When you, since you did not do the water stunts, did the filming, did you finish filming and go home or did you stick around when they were filming the water? Oh, no. Uh, well, both because they did some of the water stuff when I was there, but I left. <clears throat> no, I came home and then we did additional work back here in LA. Right. To pick up stuff. So I think I didn't have more than maybe three and a half weeks on location for that one. Oh, okay. Okay. So you weren't there for months. You were just there for three and a half weeks. Right. What did you think of the movie? I mean, you get cast in this movie. What was your, uh, do you remember what you thought of casting and what is essentially a horror movie? I never thought of it that way. I never, I didn't think about those things. I was thinking about, is this costume going to make me look fat? Uh, <laughs> you know, and Or do, can I wear a hat so I don't get sunburned? You know, I, it, I wasn't thinking of any of that. And Sid came to visit, which was good. So the boys were, were obviously in school back in L.A., but yeah. you had kind kind of an on-screen family. You had two boys of your own in the movie. Yes, I did. So that was real. And those kids were adorable. And I loved the, uh, the guy who played, uh, I can't remember the name of the role, but Jeffrey Kramer was, were, allegedly worked for Roy, the, the sheriff. Right. And Jeffrey was fun to be with. I mean, there were some lovely people there. Murray Hamilton, one of the great Murray. directors. Yes, he was. He was. And so Jeffrey is now... So go on, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say Jeffrey is in... Uh, he's still working in the production side of uh, movies and television. That's all I was going to say. Were you prepared at all for the success of the movie? Did you think this was going to explode? No, of course not. 
who knew? Um, what I do remember is going, it was wonderful because we had the, the company plane and the first preview of uh, Jaws was in Dallas. So we flew to Dallas for the first preview of the movie. And the first thing I remember is being in the theater and Verna Fields, whom I adored, uh, the editor, uh, walked by and she, the scent, when she walked by, just I thought it was the best scent ever. And she had bought a new perfume at Neiman Marcus. <laughs> that was really kind of, <laughs> that was a big memory and it was beautiful. Uh, the next thing I remember is going on the plane back and luckily they had loaded up on uh, margaritas and uh, burritos and tacos and good things to eat. So that that's what I remember. I had no idea what would happen, none. And I didn't think about it. And what do you remember about the audience reaction in that screening? It was amazing. It was an amazing reaction. Every, I think everyone was stunned and collapsed forever and yelled and hooted. It, it was fun. It was, it was terrific. It's amazing the, the release plan that Sid's marketing department planned for this movie. I read recently that it was the first time they opened one movie in four or 500 theaters at the same time. This had never been done before. No, I think Sid had enough confidence that the movie would be a smash at that point. Uh, that he said, "Let's do it. Why not? Let's do it. Let's get let's get it out there," and they did. So when they came to ask you to appear in Jaws two, once again opposite Mr. Scheider, what was your reaction? Great, <laughs> that'll be fun. I like making movies. And I, you know, I did television in between and I enjoyed it. What actor doesn't like working? Absolutely. Well, this this time, and it's so funny because I watched the movie again this morning because I hadn't seen Jaws 2 in a while. And I think Ellen's character, your character, Ellen Brody, has more to do in the second one because you're you're actually part of the development team that's trying to bring condos to Amity. And uh, I thought that you had a little bit more to do. I bet you were on this film longer. I was. <clears throat> I was indeed. And we shot it in Florida. And uh, that was an interesting experience. I was living alone. I rented a house. And the house, the house actually belonged to the governor of Louisiana. But I rented that house. And my kids came to visit. And it, it was fun. The only, the only problem I had with that house is that they had flowered sheets and I prefer white sheets, <laughs> but no, that was well, fun. I, I, it's funny because I had this, I, I thought they filmed the second one in Martha's Vineyard as well, but you're saying no. They did. Well, we always did pick up shops, you know, worked a few days in the vineyard, but the main location was Navarre Beach, Florida. Oh, okay. Where is that near? Uh, Pensacola. Pensacola. Okay, got yeah. it. Got it. I went to a a dinner that Joe Alves made, which was wonderful, and uh, I came back to to my house, and I it was uh, there was a, a tremendous storm, and it was lightning and scary, 
and my boots were too tight. I couldn't get my boots off. <laughs> I called Sid. I remember crying. I can't get my boots off. I can't get them off. What am I going to do? And there's thunder and lightning and I'm on the beach. I got through it. Everything was fine. <laughs> well, obviously, Stephen didn't direct the sequel. Um, you, you, there's a gentleman. Uh, I did a lot of television directing and, and some good features. I'm not sure I know how to pronounce his name. Jeno Swark? Uh, it's uh, Jeno Schwark. Jeno, lovely, lovely man. He apparently didn't get along well with Roy Scheider. Do you have any memories of Roy being a little bit uh, tough on him? Uh, Roy was somewhat of an asshole. I don't, you know, it, it did not only start with me. You know, he oh. was a very self-important actor. Sounds like he was perfectly uh, perfect to be cast as Bob Fosse later. Yes, well, he was amazing in that. Phenomenal. That's one of the finest performances I've ever seen. Yes. I mean, I loved his work. I thought he was terrific as an actor. Just didn't really care for him as a personal friend, nor did he care for me. So it's just fine. The last time I saw him, oh, it must be... 20 or 30 years ago, walking on Madison Avenue. And we stopped and talked, and it was very, very pleasant oh, to good. see him. Yeah, we had nothing in common at that point. Well, Stephen calls you back to action the following year in 1941, which is a movie that has a kind of turbulent reputation. I, I've probably seen it a dozen times, though. I find it to be similar to the great Stanley Kramer movie, it's a mad, 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 mad world in that it's just a, a whole crazy epic comedy. Um, tell us a little bit about getting involved in that. Um, you obviously- Well, that was fun. That was really fun uh, because I rented a house in Malibu. Uh, you know, we obviously, we live in Los Angeles and we were shooting at the beach. So I rented a house, uh, that belonged to the head of Warner Brothers, Frank Wills. Um, and I loved being at that beach. It was just phenomenal for me. It um, it was fun. I met, I got to work with Dan Aykroyd and uh, John Belushi and Mickey Rourke and the guy with the great thighs. I can't remember his name. It was it Treat Williams, I think. Right, and Treat Williams. Was, yeah, just all these, and Ned Beatty was my, my husband in the movie, and it, it was fun. Um, one little anecdote is shooting the scene where I'm in the house, and for some reason, Mickey, Rourke, and Dan, and Belushi uh, were manning a gun, a big, huge gun, and they they banged down the door of my home. And I, I don't even remember the reasoning for that. Well, they're, they're, they're out of control. They lose control and it smashes oh, right through your front door. Thank you. I've only seen it once. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and that happened. And we used fake doors until the last shot. And the last shot, they had a real door. And it got me right on my head. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, maybe it's a concussion, whatever. And... Uh, Ackroyd came up to me and he said, do you want a little uh, something to smoke to make you feel a little bit better? And I said, no, I'm going back to the house and I think scotch will help me. Thank you. So <laughs> that's the one thing I remember. So was it the door that hit you or the gun? The door. 
the, the door. wooden door, big now, wooden door. Now the Douglas house is sitting there right on the beach overlooking the Santa Monica Pier. I assume that there was a real house built, or at least the facade of a real house built outside, but most of the action took place on a soundstage. Is that, is that accurate? Not for me. Oh. Uh, all of my work on that film took place in the house. So on a stage? No, in the house on the beach. Oh. A real house on a real beach. And I was about 10 minutes away driving up the coast. And I fell in love with the beach that so much that we rented a house there for a summer. Sid fell in love with it. And ultimately, we uh, ended up getting a place on the beach so the kids could have a, a beachy life, too. And that sure. was it was great. So that was not just a facade. They actually built a full house on right there. Well, I, I never tried the kitchen or the bathroom, but <laughs> the room, I, I don't know how real it was, but they, yes, there was a house. So, but you must have, you didn't do any scenes in that sequence uh, on a stage at all, or was it all right there? No, it was all there. Wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I may have gone back for some voice work or, you know, whatever that had to be picked up. I don't remember. What, what, what was your, what are your memories of Ned Beatty? Very nice man. Very, very nice man. That's, you know, we didn't hang out. We worked. Sure. Sure. Uh, it's a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Eddie Deason. And Eddie Deason was on the Ferris wheel with Murray Hamilton. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Driving him crazy. Uh. Um, you know, it's in 1941, if you watch it today, it's a, a little bit misogynistic, uh, the, the treatment of the some of the female characters, and it's very ra racist in a way, but it's, it's, it's 1941. People weren't happy with the Japanese. They had just bombed Pearl Harbor. But I think that um, the physicality of the movie is off the charts. It's just so much going on. And I compare it to It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World simply because of all the people that Stephen assembled for this movie. I mean, there's so many characters and so such fun. What was amazing to me is that Toshiro Mifune was in the movie. I never got to meet him, but oh my God, I couldn't believe it. Toshiro Mifune speaking uh, Japanese and Christopher Lee speaking German, and neither of them, uh, I guess they're, <laughs> I, I don't understand how they're understanding each other. It was very, very funny, very funny, but the last scene in the one of the last scenes in the movie, and excuse me for spoilers, guys, because I know some of you have never seen this movie, is um, uh, Ned is going to pin a wreath on your front door to commemorate Christmas, and uh, <laughs> the whole house falls off the cliff. Do, do you remember that? Nope, I have no memory of that at all. I must have been the door hitting my head. Must have given me a concussion. All my memories are gone. <laughs> No, I don't remember that. Well, Lorraine, you 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 were in some very high-profile movies. You did a lot of television. Why did you give it up? I, I didn't give it up. It gave me up, and that was age. And I stopped working at around 40. And then I decided that I wanted to uh, produce a play and put it on on the stage here in LA and I contacted an agent for a play that a friend had written and I really liked it. The man's name was Oliver Haley 
and it was uh, a, a woman-oriented play, which I wanted to play that role. And when I went to meet with the agent, he said, no, no, you can't have the play, but would you like to be a literary agent? And I thought about it, and yes, I, I would. So I was a literary agent with this one man, and that relationship did not prove to be a very successful one. Um, but then my acting agent, who is a dear, dear friend of mine, um, was also the agent for Luciano Pavarotti. And we went to Pavarotti's concert at, uh, I think it was UCLA, I'm not sure. And um, I remember what I was wearing because I'm a woman and I was wearing a gorgeous <laughs> gold dress. And my agent friend, John Gaines, uh, introduced me to this man, this very nice man, and uh, he offered me a job. He was a literary agent. I worked for two two years at his company, and I don't remember why I left. I guess it was enough. Well, now, were you representing books or scripts? I was representing writers, scripts, and writers. Oh, oh okay. And I, yeah, and uh, the one successful thing I did was um, getting a job for a writer whom I really thought was brilliant, writing a uh, movie for Taylor Hackford with uh, Baryshnikov and I can't remember who else. Oh, I wonder if that's Gregory Hines. Was that the movie? Yes. Is, is it the uh, Out of the Past? Wait, what was the name of that? Uh, I, I don't remember it, but I do remember Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines in a thriller. So that must that have been it. No, Out yeah, of the that... Past... Out of, well, not out of the past. Out of the past was remade um, with, I believe, Jeff Bridges and James Woods, and it was made a remade. Um, and I don't remember the title of it because the original Out of the Past was uh, Jane Greer and Robert Mitchum. Um, but no, I, I I can't remember the name of the Brishnikov movie. So that was your, that was a success for you. That's great. You know, li literary agents are very tough to get. I mean, um, I, I'm a writer myself, and one of the toughest things these days is trying to get people to read your material. It's just very challenging. It's, it, everything has changed. I mean, the the fact that you can read anything you want on your phone and see anything you want. I mean, life it, life has really changed for a lot of people in a lot of businesses. So much so, so much so. Um, so tell me, uh, let's talk a little bit about Human Rights Watch Student Task Force, because this is an important uh, thing you're working on. Tell us a little bit how you got involved with that. Well, Sid got involved with Human Rights Watch, and we both fell in love <clears throat> with the mission, which is international, that every human being has rights and they should be taught those rights and governments and businesses should abide by those rights because they're sacred. You're born, you're a human being born with the right to live and the right to eat and the right to breathe and not to be tortured because of your gender or your sexual orientation and, and to be paid fairly. Everything is incredibly important. And uh, Ken Roth was the head of human rights for almost 30 years. He just retired this year. Uh, but it became like an extra family for us. We we became very close with people from all over the world who were part. Sid was on the board. 
and I would go with him. And it was just wonderful experience to be in all these different countries and not as a tourist, but as somebody who could lean into the activism that was being proposed by the people on, on staff of Human Rights Watch. It was wonderful. And it was a great way to tour the world unexpectedly and phenomenal. I mean, we got to go to places that uh, we probably never would have gone to. Give, give, a, give an example. Uh, Istanbul, oh. um, where I've oh got lots of places. Like My brain is a little fuzzy. Well, you said that was, you, you have a fondness for Africa. I'm sure you were in some interesting places in Africa. I was in Africa, sort of, not for Human Rights Watch as such, but because my friend, Jane Olson, who at one point was the chair of the board of Human Rights Watch, uh, invited me on a trip to Rwanda and Botswana. And it was thrilling. I spent three weeks in Africa. This is after I had been on safaris with Sid and some of our friends. Um, and I, I really have always, I've been intrigued by Africa. Books that I read when I was a young girl uh, intrigued me. The whole idea of this place where so much of our, our lives began and, right. and how African people were enslaved to create the world that I now live in and that you now live in. I mean, Africa was romantic in that it uh, has these gorgeous animals, beautiful, beautiful terrain. I just, I loved it. I sort of glamorized. I still do love it. Sure, sure. I, I, I want, it's definitely on my list of places to visit, definitely. Well, you know, we've had a great conversation about some of your work. I, I should mention to the listeners that you did come back for one final time in Jaws the Revenge, but it was more, was it more, more like a cameo? No, it was not. It's the only time in my life I got star above the title billing along with Michael Caine. And that was fun. And, oh, that's, uh, great. That, that's great. That's yeah. great. It's been too long since I've seen it, so I forgot about that. That's great. <laughs> it's a so pretty want... rotten movie, but it was fun to make. <laughs> I mean, it's ring the last dollar out of that franchise. <laughs> but it was fun. And uh, it, we shot in the Bahamas. And my agent, my friend, John Gaines, said, oh, you're not staying down in the hotel in the city. You're going to rent a house in Lyford Key, which is really a gated community, gorgeous. So I rented a house by myself again. And uh, you know, people came and visited. My niece came and visited. My kids came and visited. Um, that's Sid, of course. But it was, you know, sort of kind of a rotten movie, but it was it was fun to make. I always get the impression that being around Michael Caine is a hoot. Did you enjoy working with him? I did. Uh, he's a, a charming man whom I had met socially here in L.A. in Hollywood. Um, lovely man. He's married to a lovely, lovely woman, Joanna Shimko. No, that was Sidney Sidney Poitier became a friend before I did this last movie. I mean, he's somebody I had known on and off for years. And he, he arranged uh, for me to meet someone in the Bahamas, because that's where he was from. 
and right. he gave me advice. It was very, he's, what a wonderful man, gorgeous, wonderful man. And uh, I'm very sorry that he's gone because, you know, he was a complete addition to anybody's life. A lovely, oh, sure. lovely human I think being. You were, I think you were thinking of uh, Michael Caine's wife. Is it Shakira? Yes, I was thinking of Michael Caine's wife because Joanna Shimkus was Sydney's wife. Sydney's uh, wife. And Shakira is someone he saw on television, you know, the legend goes. Yeah, and Thinking of all the people you met when you, uh, over the course of your career, not only from you working, but we, being with Sid at events, who stands out in terms of the people who uh, were bigger than life? I mean, obviously, Michael Caine is bigger than life, but there are others. That, any fond memories of people you've met over the years and the business that really stand out for you? Well, when I was trying, after I gave up being a literary agent, um, my friend, Barry Diller and Michael Eisner were running Paramount at that time. And they uh, offered me an office there to produce movies. So I tried developing movies. And I had a, uh, I had an idea that I may be wrong with the timing, but I had read a book that informed me that Golda Meir, who was obviously the president of Israel in a very dangerous period of time, uh, Golda Meir was born in Milwaukee. Right. And she lived in the States until she was 17. And I thought it would be a wonderful, wonderful movie to see Golda as a girl and a friend who had just opened in a movie called... Um, Star Trek, and her name was Carrie Fisher. Carrie agreed. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. That's it. Carrie agreed to uh, to play Golda because she was a young woman, nice looking, kind of small and round and lovely. And um, it took me a year that I alone had to get to Golda to get the um, the rights to her life. And a, her attorney, who's a famous guy in D.C., I guess, arranged it one year later. I finally got to meet her. That's who stands out. I'm, movie stars, I'm, I'm impressed by people's work that really have an impact on life, sure. on the way people live. And she was phenomenal. And I remember getting her, her voice was very low. And I, I spoke for an hour and told her, this is why I want to do the story. This is how we'll tell it. This is how we'll do it. And we'll have an hour of television. And she, her, she was quiet for a minute. And then she said, why only one hour? Which was great. And then she invited me. What happened to that project? Well, what happened is she invited me to uh, Israel uh, to visit her. And I had two young kids. And I never took her. That's a re regret I have, not having the kids, but not going to Israel with to meet with Golda there. I met with her at the Regency Hotel with the most gorgeous man you can imagine standing guard outside her, her room. And it uh, it was fun. That That was really thrilling. So she impressed me. Sure. Well, that's that, that I can understand that definitely. The, I've had a real life 
not only because of Sid, but because of work that I've done. And I mean, I, I really loved her. And I, I love women who are active and powerful. Hillary, to me, was wonderful, is wonderful. Amy Klobuchar is wonderful. And I'd like to see her running the government. But uh, writers and people who actually do good work are the people that I find stunning. Actors, no. So I have to ask you a question because uh, my wife and I watched the movie finally. The winner of the Best Picture Award this year at the Academy Awards is a movie called Every Every. I uh, couldn't watch it. Everything, everywhere, all at once, and I couldn't. I it took me three nights to get through it. It just isn't my cup of tea. Yet there are people out there, and I'm sure many of the listeners who absolutely adore movies. This is a case of a movie that you either love it or you hate it. Well, I just ignored it. I tried it for about five minutes, and I thought, nope, this is not what I want to watch. And my life now, because Sid passed away four years ago, right? Uh, my life now is watching television. It's streaming endlessly, sure. streaming, and then getting getting my Kindle out and reading. Sure, sure. No, yeah. of course, it's endless entertainment. I think that the movie business, though, could use a shot in the arm because whereas television is going through a huge golden age of everything. Feature films that are in the theaters are just, and the listeners know that I talk about this a lot because I bring it up, that I, I light a candle to anybody who can get a movie made, especially these days. But I think there's there's too much um, too much artifice and not enough substance. I think the substance has gone to television. Well, I think the, the only thing I can say that I feel is that I, I began to get away from anything that is uh, technically uh, created. The right. idea, I, I, I want to know that that's a real person up there doing this real thing. I don't want to know that it was created on a computer. Sure. And that really, that takes away some of the joy of um, of action movies. No, I, I completely hear you. Well, listen, um... This has been wonderful. We've been listening to Lorraine Gary, who has had wonderful experiences in the film business and as a consort to Sid Scheinberg uh, for all those years. Lorraine, this has been wonderful. Thank you for coming on and talking to us. I really enjoyed it. I have to tell you something. You have a name that means a great deal to me because my personal doctor for 50 years <laughs> Steve Rubens and he <laughs> retired and I miss him I really miss him so thank you for having that name <laughs> well you're quite welcome and every, everyone um, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies I'm your host Steve Rubin although I don't have an S on the end I'm happy that Lorraine mentioned that uh, I also know there's a rabbi named Steve Rubin who uh, a lady once called me on my answering machine and wanted me to marry her daughter who was marrying a non-Jew and I had to explain that I wasn't <laughs> the rabbi. <laughs> uh, but this has been great. Thank you so much. And, and be well out there. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve. You're Good welcome. luck with everything. Thank you. Okay. Be safe. You Goodbye. Too.